Thanksgiving is one of those things that was a tradition that gradually coalesced into a national holiday. The Puritans had a tradition of establishing special days of thanks to respond to God's blessing. And it certainly is something that would have existed in Christianity long before them. And then over time, it sort of formed together. George Washington was the first person who declared for the United States as a whole a national day of thanksgiving. But it was 150 or even 200 years after that that all the states started using the same day and that that day got set on the fourth Thursday of Thanksgiving as we celebrate. And it's become, as you know, this fest of almost gluttony. But we come together here this morning before we feast to remember that we give thanks to a person, that we give thanks to the Lord, the one who's given us all these gifts. So we will be looking this morning at Psalm 29, which is what we read responsively in our call to worship. If you want to use verse numbers in the Pew Bibles, it's page 461. And it may seem like an odd thing. If you look back at the text real quick, you realize it doesn't even have the word thanks in there. But the point of Psalm 29 for us is that we can actually give thanks to God and God alone because he's the one who gives us life. That we give thanks to God and to God alone because he's the one who gives us life. So let's pray that he would enlighten our minds and hearts as we look at this text together this morning. God, our Father, we come asking that you would work the the miracle that you work every time we come to your word. That you would take hard-hearted sinners and open not only our minds but our hearts that we might hear the word, we might understand the word, we might be changed by the word. Would you do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the idea that we give thanks to God alone... Because he's the source of life. Well, let's look at that under two pieces in Psalm 29. Let's first take the question, what is life? And then second, take the question, where do we find it? So as you look at Psalm 29 here, what is life? The first thing that'll help this start to make sense is to realize that this psalm is all about rain. R-A-I-N. So look down for starters at verse 3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. He thunders over the mighty waters. In Israel, today just like in the ancient times, rain formed out over the Mediterranean Sea, out to the west. The mighty waters is what that means. The sun would heat up the water. The humidity would go up. It would form into the billowing rain clouds. The thunder would start crackling through the thunderhead. All offshore waiting to be blown in by the sea breeze. It was similar to, I grew, not grew up, I spent two years living in Orlando. And you could pretty much know all summer that the clouds would be forming over the Gulf of Mexico as the sun heated up the water, waiting to blow across the panhandle, waiting to blow across the peninsula. So God, the voice of the Lord, the Lord is being shown to us with images that all come from a thunderstorm, the thunderstorm building out over the ocean. Verse 5 The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. The image of a thunderstorm coming in where the wind splinters the pines. Where in fact the the lightning and the thunder that are with it shatter the trees as they hit them. Verse 5. Verse 6. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. Lebanon and Syrian were two mountain regions. If there's anything that seems solid, that seems unshakable, it's a mountain. 
But if you've ever been in a high mountain thunderstorm, you know everything shakes. Everything rattles. The mountains themselves quake in this context. If you had any doubt, verse 7, the voice of the Lord strikes or flashes with lightning. We're talking about God, and we're using every image out there from an ancient thunderstorm to describe this God. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert in verse 8. The Lord twists the oaks and strips the forests bare. Have you ever seen a tree struck by lightning? The bark splintered away from, from earth to ground. Have you ever seen what happens when a storm rolls in and the wind is so strong that every tree is twisting, the leaves are going? And so, verse 9, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. All of the imagery of this psalm is talking about an ancient Near Eastern thunderstorm. Now, I've been, it was one of the most terrifying moments of my life, caught in a thunderstorm in Colorado above treeline. And it is probably one of those things that I will remember till my dying day because I almost died. And these images make so much sense if you felt it, but it's almost hard to understand how strong Psalm 29 is, how much the poet is dwelling on the power of a storm like this. To this day, right now, talking about it, remembering it, my heart is pattering, racing, thinking about And the Israelites knew what it meant to be in a storm like this, but the thing is, I react with fear. I guarantee you that's not the reaction the Israelites had to one of these storms. They would have reacted with dancing, with celebration, with singing, with a party. Why? Because to them, rain was life. God put Israel in a place where they depended on the rain for their crops. They lived in a river, not a river culture, they lived in a rain culture in Canaan, exactly the reverse of the river culture they had known from Egypt. There's only one river of any magnitude in Israel, and that's the Jordan, though you would be forgiven for mistaking it as a trout stream, unless it's the flood season. Beyond that, the Jordan is so low in terms of elevation, it's useless for irrigation. The Israelites lived up in the hills, hundreds of elevation feet above the Jordan River. Large portions of its course are below sea level. It was useless to water their fields. Today, Israel uses the Jordan for irrigation because that's they have electric pumps. The ancients quite obviously didn't have that. So Israel had rain or it had nothing. In a very real sense, no rain meant no crops, meant no food, meant no life. Rain was life for them. It was that simple. And that, of course, forces us to ask the question, what is it for us that lands in the place of rain for them? What is the thing that's just life for us? And this really isn't hard to diagnose. Just ask the question, what can I not imagine going on without? What can I not imagine any purpose? What can I not imagine waking up the next morning? Is it a job? Is it a reputation? Is it your wealth? Your family? How your kids do? How ordered life goes? What is it? What's the thing that for you, you just say, this is life? 
Now, you could get all pious on me and say, well, Jesus is life for me, nothing else. Yeah, sure. But we're always putting other things in his place. We're always saying, this is life for me. And this strays into the second question. Where do we find it? Where do we find life? Now, Psalm 29, the Israelites understand that rain, which was life for them, came from Yahweh. It came from God. And so this hymn of praise is in the Psalter to say, God is the one who gives us life. He's the one we praise. Now, I recognize some of you may have given a very literal answer to my question just a second ago. You're engineers. You hate this metaphorical liberal arts stuff. You know, there are things that you need. You aren't going to live long without air, water, food, shelter. You know, there are things that you could say are life to us. And that was true in Israel. They needed rain. If it didn't rain, they would die. So the psalm is not saying, forget all that need of rain. All you really need is Jesus. The psalm is saying, God knows you need the rain. And so he's going to give it to you. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, you don't have to run after where will we sleep? What will we eat? Because your heavenly father knows you need these things. The message of the psalm is that we give praise to God and God alone because he's the one who's given us this. But here's the interesting thing about Psalm 29. The Canaanites said the exact same thing to their God, the God you call Baal. The Canaanites used all these images, all these phrasings. We've dug up lots of these Canaanite documents that testify. In fact, they might even have sung Psalm 29 but with the name Baal instead of the name Yahweh. What's going on? Well, the Canaanites said, this is where we find life, with Baal, our God. And the Bible is basically saying, at least in this one sense, Canaanites, right theology, wrong God. The Canaanites were right. They could no more make life for themselves. They could no more make it rain than they could will themselves to suddenly grow 20 feet tall. Life came from outside them. They at least knew that, but they got the God wrong. They said, Baal's the one who will give us life. And the Bible says, no, it is God, and it is God alone who is our source of life. Now, how does that form us? How does that shape us? Well, the Israelites were always tempted to look at their Canaanite neighbors and say, how does your garden grow? I mean, the Canaanites had lived in this land far longer than they had. They knew the soil. They knew the weather. They knew the context. They were the ones who had been so successful that under Joshua, when the Israelites sent in spies, the spies came home and said, those folks are so well-fed, we can never take them. It was always the temptation of Israel to look at its Canaanite neighbors and say, you tell me how to do this thing. And the Canaanites would always be happy to answer that question. It's really easy. Follow Baal. Order your life around him. Let him be your God. If you will just do that, you will flourish. And in response, Psalm 29 says, no, it's not that at all. Yahweh is your source of life. And this has really been the theme of our sermon series all fall. Beautiful, no. Beautiful, yes. Because just like the Canaanites were tempted to look at all those around them and say, how does your garden grow? Well, we are tempted to look at all those around us, to look at our neighbors and say, how's your garden grow? You've been here in D.C. for a long time. You've figured this thing out. You know how to get promoted. 
You know how to get the grades. You know how to make your life flourish. You know how to get the guys or the gals. How does your garden grow? Tell me how to do it. And our neighbors are really happy to oblige. They'll say, well, hey, it's very simple. Order your life around this principle. Order your career this way. Use this drug. Drink this drink. Act this way. Flirt this way. Do this thing. If you will let that be your bail, if you will let that be your God, if you will order yourself around it, you will have life. To which Psalm 29 says, No, life is in Yahweh. It is in God the Lord and the Lord alone. And that truth is what lets us say both the beautiful no and the beautiful yes. A beautiful no to all these things, our anger, our pride, our self-righteousness, our reputation, our judgmentalism, our racism, our selfness. And to say, no, I think in my warped self those things will give me light. They'll give me life. No. No to them. Instead, yes to the gospel. That life is found in him and therefore yes to the freedom, yes to the grace that we can put down the umbrellas that we use to try to keep that reign of God's mercy off us and let his goodness wash over us. John 10, Jesus said, I've come and I've come that they may have life and I've come that they may have life abundantly. And that's what we thank him for. So let's pray. God, our Father, we come and we praise you, we thank you. We confess again that we have found life in many, many things other than you. That we are always tempted to look to those around us and say, tell me how to do it. And then we're always tempted to order ourselves around what they tell us. We confess we've done it in ways where we even fool ourselves and don't pay attention to what's really moving us and and motivating us. So we turn in thanksgiving to remind ourselves and to confess again that all good gifts are from you. And that that's where there is hope and that that's where there is truth. So would you imprint that on our hearts as we give thanks today that we thank you and you alone. We pray it in Jesus' wonderful and holy name. Amen.